All right, so welcome back to Educating Well Black. Um, I'm really excited to have this person on today. Uh, we've been following them on Twitter and LinkedIn and been kind of keeping up with the stuff that they've been doing because of the way in which they speak about the work that they have been involved in and what's brought them to that point. Um, today's person I'm talking to is Carl and just giving a bit of a rundown about Carl. Uh, so Carl is a qualified classroom teacher with a decade of experience across primary, secondary and further education sectors. So there's already a wealth of experience there that we can talk about. Um, there's a specialisation in behaviour management and he's worked in not in education, employment or training. So that's the term NEETS as they are still termed and definitely were termed when I was coming through teaching as well. And working with students who had severe social, uh, emotional and mental health difficulties. And so again, when we're thinking about what this looks like for the whole child and not just necessarily the academic attainment, but like the actual character building of a child as well as so making sure that students with accessibility needs are having those needs met um, by a teacher too. Uh, Carl has designed and facilitated rehabilitation classes for year 8 to 11 students who have been excluded from mainstream education and at the risk of becoming NEETS themselves. Uh, Carl has earned a level 4 ILM diploma in leadership, management and further education, which is pretty interesting and cool, nice one. Um, beyond that, Carl has worked with a number of organisations, including the prestigious National Education Union, which is the largest education association in Europe, and that is a big name in terms of um, yeah, teacher mobilization, teacher assembly, unionizing, really, really cool. And this is one of the things that brought me on to Carl as well. So it's the Action Hero Teacher blog. Um, so Carl has a blog that he writes. He has a, a, opinions about behavior, opinions about education, which is really, really cool. And I enjoy reading them. And this particular blog was ranked um, by the influential PR marketing software company, Vulio, if I even pronounce them correctly. <laughs> Vulio. <laughs> Um, and it's one of the top 10 education blogs in the United Kingdom as of September 2020. So we're doing big things out here as well. Um, and so with that, I want to hand over to Carl to do a bit of an introduction yourself. Um, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm fine, man. Um, thank you so much, Marlon, for inviting me onto your show. I really appreciate it. You're doing big things as well. Um, I didn't tell you before, off air, I forgot to tell you this. Um, when you sent me the request through, I thought, okay, let me have a listen. And it was dynamite. A lot of your interviews were dynamite. And that's when I said, you know what, I have to jump on. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> that's really nice to hear. What was it that like stood out? Was there anything that was of interest or? Yeah. I think the way that you interview, because I was thinking initially when when I saw it, I was thinking what, what, when you deal with different podcasters and interviewers, obviously they have their own styles. And what I liked about your style is that you're very good at drawing out nuance. It wasn't just like, Black people, discrimination, yeah, government. You know what I mean? It was more, <laughs> you know how it is. It's, it was more nuanced than that. Cause I was kind of thinking we need to have a bit more of, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but we again, we've got to think like a surgeon rather than a hammer, if that kind mm -hmm. of makes sense. Mm -hmm. really nuance to our arguments rather than just rehashing the same thing over and over and over again, really which does. I kind of feel, and we'll touch on that. We're going, sometimes we're rehashing the same arguments when it's, it's moved on. So I really appreciate you've got quite a skill in terms of interviewing people. You are way too kind. <laughs> Watch me flop it now. But let's <laughs> so then let's begin from like the beginning of your career journey. So there's a particular way. So if, if where we are right now is that you have a blog and the title of the blog is Action Hero Teacher. Like, so in terms of it being more than just what a teacher has been described as being before, the characteristics of a teacher beforehand. If this is where we are right, at right now, where we have a blog that's been rated very highly in its field, tell me how we got here. How did you come into teaching? How did you decide the career journey that you wanted to go through? And how has Blackness played a role in any of that? Dude, 
is a very long story, but I'm going to give you the abridged version. It's a very long story. If you told me at the age of 16, Carl, you are going to be a teacher, I would have laughed my head off. I would have laughed. My teachers would have laughed. My parents would have laughed. Everybody would have kind of laughed. I'm not saying I was like a bad man setting my, my school on fire, but I was totally disengaged with education. I hated education, to be absolutely honest with you. Um, I wasn't really feeling it. Um, so basically, uh, I went to uni, I did the normal thing, again, not really engaging with um, education. I worked in uh, the private sector for a while. I worked mainly in sales and technology. But then uh, I was doing all right, getting the nice bonuses, you know what I mean? Nice watches, like feeling like a rapper, feeling myself, Jay-Z. Um, it was nice, uh, the money. Um, but the, there was two problems that happened. Number one, I wasn't really getting anything from it. I just realised that I was making somebody right at the top much richer uh, and giving them more time to play golf and there wasn't anything like I felt like I was giving back and I know it sounds cliche I'm not saying I was even earning that big 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 peas but put it this way coming out of uni and earning you know what I was earning not even many adults were earning that at the time but it really made me think about my life that's number one and number two the great recession hit uh, of 2008 uh, it's kind of Okay, we're in a we're in a pandemic at this time of recording, but it kind of felt the same way in terms of the world ending and the whole financial system felt like it was going to collapse. So my sector got really hit very very hard um, by uh, I was going to say COVID by the Great Recession, the credit crunch. Mm. Um, so at that time, similar to this time, a lot of businesses were just like closing, folding. Uh, closing yeah. down, folding. So luckily for me, my my previous job, they were like, look. You've got a choice. Either you can re they did a, a, I love these words, restructuring or streamlining, which means people are going to get fired. Um, so they gave me a choice. I, they said to me, basically, we can give you a package. You can leave because we just want to, we'll give you kind of like, like a year's salary or something and you go, or you can re-interview for your job. And, but basically if you get cut, there's nothing. You're not going to get nothing. Um, so I thought in my head, you know what? I've been feeling, I need to kind of sit and think about what I want to do with my life. And um, I took the money. Uh, luckily for me, because my whole division got closed, so nobody even kept their job. So that was following my instincts. I know. So I went through, a sec I didn't go through the conventional route of education. I became a youth worker. I realised that I liked working with young people um, because I hated school. So I, I went to basically a music studio because at the time I was making music and beats and stuff like that. Um, and I was helping the kids and the MC spit the hot fire. Um, <laughs> and basically the manager was kind of like, you know, you're really good with the kids, like go through, basically you can use the center to kind of get teaching qualifications. So I got something called a DETLS, which is a diploma in teaching in the lifelong learning sector. Um, and I basically rose up the ranks to uh, becoming a NEETS coordinator. Uh, and very quickly, what a NEET is, is not an employment education or training. And usually these are the guys that um, leave uh, school with without the five minimum GCSEs. Often they've been expelled or excluded and what the government at the time, and this is the early two, uh, 2010s, okay. what the government at the time said was these guys are 70 to 80% more likely to uh, participate in antisocial behavior and have bleak life outcomes. Speak English, Carl, what does that mean? Antisocial behavior is gangs, drugs, being a victim of or perpetrator of a crime. Uh, it could be even sex trafficking. It can get really, really deep and they'll have bleak life outcomes. As you know, and you're probably yeah. your listeners know, you don't get, you know, Okay, it's it's not strictly speaking that way, but it there is this uh, uh, there is a connection between low GCSEs and obviously what type of jobs you're going to get. So my job 
um, like the, uh, those people in the men in black were the first and last line of defense was to mm. try and get them in some form of employment or some form of education. So that was a lot of work because they completely disengaged with education. Then uh, austerity hit. And uh, unfortunately, uh, thanks to David Cameron, um, I don't know, do you remember there was a time, <laughs> this government's legendary, do you remember there was a time where they were saying, oh, there's going to be millions and millions of apprenticeships? I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that. Mm-hmm. With David Cameron was boasting. Mm-hmm. What we didn't realise was the Department of Education or state education is what we call ring-fenced. It has to have a minimum amount of money to be funded. Yeah. Okay, so it's ring-fenced. Um, but where I was working, further education is not ring-fenced. So basically they are robbing Peter to pay Paul. So all of a sudden we had our project, we we're doing well, uh, and all of a sudden all the funding went. So they said, basically you've got kind of three months and then we run out of funding. Um, and yeah, but luckily at that time I, I gained something called a QTLS, which is the same as a QTS. So I could have, I could run into mainstream schooling, ran into mainstream schooling now, hopped around doing supply teaching, uh, and um, basically because of the training, uh, and I'll go into that if you want, mm-hmm. because of the training that I received as a NEETS coordinator, a lot of teachers were like, how do you do this? Why, you, you know, you, you seem so good with the kids and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't think anything of it because I thought that's what all teachers did. But when I spoke to teachers, they were like, you know, we didn't get any of this training. We had literally a module on behavior management and it was like, sit down and be quiet. And it's like two weeks. And I was like, wow. I was like, okay, so that led me to writing the book because so many people are asking me. And again, it's not because I'm some special individual. It's just, I worked with CAMS, which is Child Adolescent Mental mm-hmm. Health Services, the Yacht Team, Youth Offending Team, which mm-hmm. is basically like four matrix gangs, that type of stuff. We were literally having trainings with psychologists almost every other day. So I was very extensively trained to deal with these young people that have SEMH. So I thought, let me write a book. I wrote Action Hero Teacher in 2019, and that's changed my life. And this is why I'm here in front of you now. Listen, it's beyond that as to why you're here today as well. I'm even even in listening to what you're saying, there's a series of like forks in the road is how I, I guess I'm visioning it. Like there's an opportunity to stick or twist, stick or twist, stick or twist. And so oftentimes we value ads decisions as being better or worse than versus it's just left or right to. Like it's just a decision, right? So having the opportunity um, now looking back to say, yeah, I'm glad I... I, I jumped ship from mm. the role that I was in. I, you know, I, I forward planned, I, you know, had the, the foresight to kind of, and perhaps this is the thing, right? We look back at it and say that we had the foresight, but again, everything's a fork in the road. So what is really astounding to me is that here's a, like a lesson in taking opportunities as they're presented to you and not necessarily scaling back oneself as being like, oh, I'm not ready or I'm not the right person or maybe someone else but me. Because everything that you've said to me so far has just been a statement of fact rather than a better or worse decision than something else that you were presented with at the time. And I think that that in and of itself is a considered conversation to have from people, which is like, it's not a case of had I not done this and had I only done that, blah, blah, blah. It's like everything that you said so far just sounds to me like it was a considered choice of, right, how do I want to you know, get better in the job that I'm doing per se. So I'm going to do it this way, or here's the opportunities that's open to me. So I'm going to do it that way. It's just seeking out the opportunities that are presented in front of you and taking them. Um, and I really like that, that that's something that you did, basically. You, um, I've been very, very lucky. And I just realized I didn't answer part of your question. Um, okay. You asked me how blackness affected my career. It, it, it gave me a very, very interesting perspective. Um, when I look at 
So I'm I'm from London. I'm a Londoner. And I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, I was raised in not the greatest of towns on the outskirts of East London. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't, I was very lucky that I had um, my parents, um, you know, in the household with me. And again, that's pure luck. That's not because of me. And I, I was very lucky I had mentors as well. The people that I know that didn't have the mentors or the guidance really fell by the wayside. Like the typical stories of prison, the typical stories of um, drug dealing or gangs or murders. So I was very, very lucky. But what I realized entering the education system, in fact, I'll tell you a funny little story really quickly. When I went to go and write my book, Action Hero Teacher, mm-hmm. right? Um, I spoke to a colleague of mine because, you know, people are asking uh, a lot of questions. And I kind of thought like the particular job I was working in, they're kind of trying to rinse me. I'm not getting any extra money, but you're asking me all these questions. So I thought, nah, 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 this can't run. Uh, <laughs> so I thought, for real. <laughs> <laughs> this, this can't run. So I remember saying to my colleague, you also happen to be black as well, and said, look, I want to write a book about behavior management. And I'll never forget what my colleague said to me. My colleague said, you've got to be careful with that. Because I was all thinking he's going to be like, yeah, man, you know, do your thing, man. And he's like, you've got to be careful. And I was like, why? And he goes, they're not going to take you seriously. I said, what? Mm. Why? Why do you say that? He goes, look, you're a black man. Mm. In education, they don't want a black man speaking mm-hmm. of things. So me being me, now, one thing with me, I don't know if this is, my wife thinks this is a bad thing. I think this is a good thing. If you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go and try and do it. Uh, you, know, you can see the problems there with my wife. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I went and did my research. So I was thinking, well, because he was like, how many black um, authors do you know in anything? You know, not even in education, in anything. Handful. So I went to go and look. And I couldn't believe that it, uh, in terms of uh, black authors that talk about teaching. Now, I could be wrong. Your listeners can come correct me. Come and tell me if I'm wrong. But when I did my research in 2018, before I wrote the book, mm. I could only find one other black male author. And it was a man called Dr. Tony Sewell. Mm-hmm. Wrote a, mm-hmm. a, a legendary book called Black mm-hmm. Masculinities in Schooling. And I recommend everybody, whether you're black, white, green, whatever color you are, go and read it. Because he was talking about, he did his research in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. the shock of it is 20 years forward, it me. hasn't changed. Yeah. It hasn't, and he was, he was talking about systemic racism mm-hmm. and institutional racism. So I thought in my head, I can't believe that there's only, that was written in 1998 and re-released in 2001. And there's not been any other people that have walked in his footsteps. So I was kind of like, you know what? I'm going to go and write a book for myself. It doesn't matter if it, you know, it, it doesn't matter what people think, but you know, this, this is embarrassing. You know, mm. we need more authors, you know what I'm saying? So I wrote it, um, not, it's not that I didn't think, I, one thing I did as well as I said, cause I, you felt, I felt kind of like under pressure. Should I write it like an academic book and, you know, all encyclopedic and I can do all those things. I can do those things because obviously I know through my training and most teachers can write academic. That's what we have to do to get right. qualifications. But I said, that's not real. Mm-hmm. It's not a real way of talking. So I actually said, I need to speak almost as if me and you are having a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not dumbing it down. I'll give you all the content that you need. But I said, that's not going to help you. As I said in my book, if a child's going to throw a chair at you, you're not going to be thinking, hmm, Sigmund Freud book is going to save me now. You hold the book, you know, it's not going to save you. It's not going to do nothing for you. You need, I call it being straight with no chaser. You need mm-hmm. just facts. Mm-hmm. It's the most simplest way possible. Mm-hmm. And it was harder than I thought, but you know, as I said, that book changed my life in terms of people really resonated with it. And I think it's because of, I'm being as real as I humanly can with you. Um, and again, you'll see, mm-hmm. I, I try not to sugarcoat anything. You said two things that I really, really resonate with. It's um, 
first and foremost, it's the idea that the dichotomy, the dichotomy is that it is academic or dumbed down. Mm. then you're always going to find like the the sort of false fallacy that if I just throw in a couple of like F7 thesaurus like you know words up in there God, I sound no. more intelligent <laughs> right exactly than I actually am but I'm actually not saying anything which is mm. what you I mean mm. it's gonna sound really whatever there's a lot of like Twitter like thesis that are written mm-hmm. about certain things where it's just like this is not it's not saying anything like you've used all these characters to say absolutely nothing so that's that's a false dichotomy to me the other dichotomy would be accessible and do you just want like and this is the same thing that we talk about in education education should be accessible right at the at the point of greatest need so if it's going to be understood by the vast majority of people it's not a case of it being academic versus not it's a case of it being accessible usable ready to use um applicable multiple different spaces pragmatic in its use like all of those things still exist over there versus it being inaccessible and some sort of like tome that that's that's written so that's like the first thing and it's funny because when I was doing teacher training I I would always use there's some analogies that I would use that I still use to this day even when I'm talking about um diversity and inclusion and such and one of them that I would always think about because I came through the teach first route which is more practical based than theory based um although that again that's not a binary it's just what they what it is right um i always look at it as being taking your theory test as a driver versus your practical test as a driver now i can't drive so (laughs) i'm talking i'm talking Uh, right now but (laughs) is is that like you know part of it is when you are doing your theory test you have to know formulas such as braking distance right so Mm -hmm. you know on an icy road you mash the brakes this is the calculated formula of how long it should take your car to stop given on a particular road surface in icy conditions like Canada, you mash the brakes and you hope for the best, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is, you know what I mean? So it's like there's an understanding that, yeah, it's useful to have a framework of what should typically happen in a condition that is optimal with all of these factors taking place. This is what should happen if this happens. So, as you said, a kid throwing a chair, really and truly, that's the sort of resultant from a buildup of things that were happening before. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The framework is actually what are all the things that initiated that mm-hmm. moment to take place. And that you can theorize that, you can write lovely essays about that, you can do all kind of things. But at the moment when it's physically happening, <laughs> as you said, yeah, exactly. what are you going for? <laughs> right? I'll, I'll give you another little story, right? So in my school, um, we get external people to come and train. And I'll never forget this, right? So we got psychologists, these guys were bigged up. Not to, you know, let me not say it because it sounds like I'm being a bit sarcastic. No, they're, they're good at what they do. Um, so they came in and we were talking. So I work, uh, the school I work in is uh, very multi-ethnic, social, there's a lot of social deprivation um, and obviously all the problems that kind of come with that. So the psychologists were coming in to kind of talk to all of us as teachers. And I'll never forget what the psychologist said. So if you've got a child that's emotionally dysregulated or in other words, kicking off, throwing the chair, swearing, you know, the, the, the psychologist said, <laughs> yeah. uh, what, emotionally dysregulated? No, no, uh, kicking off. Kicking off, I love that as well. <laughs> emotionally dysregulated is too big a word. Like, what happens to get that, you know what I mean? What, what does that off. mean? Um, and it has whole different connotations, but yeah, continue, sorry. Exactly. No problem. So the guy was like, oh, sorry, the lady was like, you know, and if a child is, you know, um, kicking off in your classroom, what you need to do, get the child needs to calm down, get that child out of the classroom, you know, you walk around with that child and, you know, talk to that child. And one of my colleagues said, put put his, uh, his hands up and he said, I'm not being funny, right? We've got 
you know, 30 kids in a classroom. This kid's kicked off. We're going to walk around with him for 10, 15 minutes. What's going to happen to the other 29 kids? I said, it's going to, well, in my head, I thought, Lord of the Flies, it's going to be every man for every dog. And he said, that's unrealistic. And what I say in my book, well, I didn't put it in this book, I'm putting it in the next book. Every technique that I talk about, I always apply what I call the two-minute rule. And it comes from this. You've got typically in most schools, you've got about an hour or 75 minutes with mm-hmm. a, a session with a child, right? Hour, 30 kids, 60, 60 minutes divided by 30 equals two minutes. Mm-hmm. You've got to do things that if it doesn't have an impact within two minutes, it's no good. I'm not saying, obviously, there's some things that will need longer. But what I'm saying is it needs to be instantaneous. I always remind myself it needs to be something practical right now. What do we do? Kids throwing a chair. You know, I can go, oh, you know, it was a false object in his parent. You know, this is his ID and the psyche. And I can talk all the Freudian stuff. It's not going to help me. Two minutes. Exactly. So I kind of came with that approach. And I think that's, and again, dealing with the young people we deal with, uh, you know, especially in London or most inner cities, you kind of got to... How can I say it? I'm trying to put it in the right words. You've got to figure out the con. You basically, got, it's almost like being a detective. You kind of got to prevent the things from happening in the first place, and then when it happens, you deal with it effectively, quickly, and effectively. Because otherwise, if you don't and you let it linger and linger and linger, it gets worse. Absolutely. Right? Yes. So that is kind of my thinking, and that's been my whole kind of reasoning behind that. And just to add, last bit to add mm. on in terms of blackness, as I said, you know, going to school for me whether it's the 80s or 90s i don't think it's changed i don't think in terms of the whole context and the institution itself it has changed and what makes me sad is that and this is a fact as we saw with george floyd and all the things that happened there you know we school is not very uh welcoming for people who are different Mm -mm. right we can put obviously color in there but we can also put lgbtq uh q plus in there you can put uh, Romani uh, mm-hmm. uh, Romani uh, travelers in there. Yeah. You can put, you know, most categories in there. If you're not, in, in, in fact, we can even talk about white working class. I mean, we should, because that's yeah. always seen as, be- and, and why I say we should is not because I necessarily prioritize it, but the idea that working class is a category that should be put in there and white is a subset of working class. Absolutely, exactly. you know, exactly. so yeah, I agree. It's built for a particular, and just to touch on what's happening now, if you look at, COVID and how it's affecting um, the young people. If you look at in terms of the data and stuff, yes, of course, it's going to be some slight fall away, but the people that are really suffering are those who are from the working classes. Those who are from, I hate this word, BAME, and we can talk Mm. about why I hate this word, the BAME community. It's those who are travelers. Because again, you know, if you come from a middle to an upper class background, you will have more resources to be able to deal with these things and, and to make it more seamless. But if, you know, for example, you live in a, social housing and there's eight of you and there's not eight you know computers and your mum and dad have got to work as well how are you going to be able to cope with those pressures if you're so, on dial-up you know, well if you're on not dial-up because no one's really on dial-up anymore but some people are still but if you're on broadband yeah. that also you know doesn't have the bandwidth to like to, to have the capacity for more than two computers on the thing before it starts to kick off like mm. what are all of these things it's true um you know i i find it interesting when i think about when I was, again, working in that organization doing teacher training, there's a lot of uh, terms being used around what makes for great subjects learning. And so mastery is the term that keeps being used, right? So you've got English mastery, math mastery, science mastery, 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 everything's mastery. And this is great mm. on one end, because it's like, you know, what is the pinnacle of like mm. uh, a, a sort of um, a very well attuned to their subject 
people? Mm. Like what, what can they master at their age? What are the limits that we can push? But then if you ask those same people, what's the purpose of education? Yeah. yeah. What are we talking about for those who need to accessibly come onto the ramp in the first place to, to do something that is functional, but then also the loaded term of functional education becomes yeah. this other thing about what educate, like you see what I mean? So there's, there's a way that even from the beginning, what we are looking at oftentimes when people, um, and it go goes right back to something you said earlier on, yeah. when you break down the amount of hours that are given to different aspects of teaching, so that which is behavior, that which is assessing, that which is teaching and learning, that which is whatever else, is unequal. And it's unequal intended because there's a way that the assumption is, um, you know, for some people, because I loved music, I'm just mm. going to give them, you know, great music lessons because of my love of music will transfer onto them and they'll be great musicians. And again, similarly, you have to say to, I've said to multiple music trainees, multiple language trainees, they are going to butcher your language before they get it right. And some of them will never get it right. They're mm. going to mash up your instrument before they actually learn how to play it, like in any kind of way that sounds like how it should be played. And you need to weather through mm. those lessons as much as the ones where you've got like, you know, your, your, mm. I don't want to call them gifted, but the ones that they're, they're far more attuned to success in your subject, you can't just be waiting for those lessons in your day to kind of make your whole educational experience as to why I became a teacher stick. Like you need to be able to think about the whole spectrum. And I do feel like teacher training doesn't do that. It doesn't ask those questions. So kind of going back to your point about nothing moving on, partly nothing's moved on because what we're still working on is tinkering over here with what makes for mastery, what makes for mastery, what makes for mastery, that's cool. What makes for accessibility is the question on the other side that no one wants to touch because that's not fashionable. Like we, we don't write books about accessibility. We don't, we don't make money from accessibility. I don't become a, a hashtag edu Twitter person from accessibility. All these things happen over here where I can talk about my subject in the most purest of forms as though nobody is doing it. Microsoft is doing it. Computations are doing my subjects. Because mm. if you input this and you do, da, 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 you know, times it by whatever else, the pure output is. And then mm. when we throw in like kids, mm. those um, computations don't work. No, so yeah, I agree. Can I say something controversial? Yeah, go for it. I think that the education system is obsolete. Mm. And watch what I mean. Let me qualify my statement before the Twitter. People I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't disagree. Now let me let me break it down. Go ahead. Teaching, this is what I say a lot. And in fact, I wrote uh, a quick plug, but not intentional plug, but um, I wrote something called Teaching Generation Z, which is on my website. It's a free mm. book. I was so frustrated with what I, I was seeing. I actually wrote about this subject. What, what, so why is it obsolete? We are teaching 21st century kids in 18th century classrooms. Absolutely. If, for real, if I, went, if I had the TARDIS, right? If I was Doctor Who and I could go back through time, and I went back to Victorian England when the modern education system started. And I took a teacher and I said, look, dude, come with me. You're going to go and teach in the 21st century. I took that teacher into the classroom. Apart from the whiteboard and apart from maybe some technology, he would understand, he or she would Fully understand how they were. And Fully he, out money, they'll be able to teach the subject, whether it's, math, whether it's history. Of course, you know, history, that's complicated. But, you know, <laughs> be able to teach. Get I understand. Yeah, get the exercise book out, turn the page to 110, do this exercise, right? Why am I saying this? Because the education system has not been disrupted. There you go. Everything else has been disrupted. In the, in the um, 19th century, the 1800s, they had horse and carriage, 
Yeah, that was the main mode of transportation. In the late um, 19th century, to, um, 20th century, that's when Henry and Ford invented the car. Mm-hmm. These things you can name, we didn't have mobiles, we didn't have TV, we didn't have anything. Every other industry has been disrupted apart from education. What people have got to understand, and this is not conspiratorial, this is actual fact, what I'm saying. So you can go and look this up, understand your history. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why we have this education system the way we do is because we moved from the agricultural society into an industrial society. So, you know, people talk about Carnegie, people talk about Rockefeller. Here, we uh, Isambard Brunel, whom Brunel University was yep. uh, named after. Yep. So what we had here was people that were used to farming and then they uh, went into factories. And the problem that they were getting was uh, the industrialists were saying, look, we can't get people to work in the factories. There's no right. way we can tell who's smart and who's not smart. So they helped to, and again, this is not conspiratorial. This is actual fact. They helped to build the modern education system. That's why it's like a factory. Mm-hmm. We literally process these people. And in fact, if you want even more information, look up a guy called Sir Ken Robinson, absolute mm-hmm. hero. He spoke about this in the, the greatest, I think it's the most watched TED talk in history, which is saying, is schools killing creativity, right? And he spoke about everything I'm about to say. So mm-hmm. it's all out there, right? We process the children like products. We look at them, we say, you're good. We give you an A or new money, that would be a seven or an eight. I'll stick to the old money, mm. the old way. I'll give you an A. If you're not so good, B, C. So you can actually grade these kids and say, all right, all the kids that get A, we can put them in charge of managing a team or managing this. All the people that get D, we can put them on the factory floor. We process them. We get them used to a world of work. We make them wear the same uniforms. They have to put their hand up to go to the toilet. Why? Because we have to prepare them for work, right? In the, in the industrial age. That's the key, right? The problem is we're no longer in the industrial mm-hmm. age. And COVID has proven this. I listened to a podcast, right? And it, uh, it was called by um, a company called 8 Billion Ideas. This podcast blew my mind. This was about six months ago. Someone sent this to me. So he had Alistair Stewart, you know, the newsreader, Alistair Stewart, who is a host with the head of LinkedIn or the head of technology for LinkedIn. I think Microsoft and these other tech companies, right? And what they said, I'll never forget what the guy on LinkedIn said. The guy on LinkedIn said, we have got an algorithm, right? Which predicts jobs and whatnot, what have you, and looks at the trends. So obviously when you get listings of jobs and stuff, it goes into this computer and they try and predict what's going on. And what he said was that, we, what he basically said was half the jobs that are um, currently out, the by the time, in 2030, by the time this lot of school children get into the working workforce, half the jobs that they're going to get don't even exist. Mm-hmm. He said, if you look at things like Facebook, we think Facebook, you know, has been around forever. Facebook is only about Not 50 at all. Years old. Same with Amazon, same with all of these, yeah. Amazon, 20 years on Uber. Mm-hmm. five or six years old, mm-hmm. these things have changed the game. Mm-hmm. So talking about King Henry VIII and his eight wives and who's the one he chopped the head off and whatnot, kids don't need that anymore. Can I tell you why? Because they've got this. Yeah. Now, I, don't, I won't say, oh, sorry, because they can't see, a mobile phone in my hand. Now, I'm not going to say my age, but I remember I was born before the internet and I'm sure it's the same for you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to find information, I would literally have to go to the library. I would. I have to go and literally fo- get the reference book. That you Britannica, big old Britannica encyclopedia. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you on your head, you'll die. You know, you'll photocopy the pages you need. You go home. That would take me hours to do. I have to go. plan a day. You know what? If I want to find out about King Henry VIII, you know what I do? I just take my phone out and within about six seconds, there I'll you go. You don't have to type it these days. You can just say what you want. 
and Siri will say, do the rest. You know what so I mean? Why, exactly. So why are we? Because what he was saying was um, what they were basically saying. I know I've gone on a tangent. I'm really mm -hmm. passionate about this. What they were basically saying is that the education system needs to reflect the current environment because what COVID has taught us, you know, it was basically, basically what he was saying was, um, for example, computer programming. What the guy from IBM was saying is that the way that we teach computer programming in schools, by the time, just say it's over five years, a typical child learns, by the time the child learns the computer program in school, it's already obsolete what he knows there because all the textbooks are old. Even me, the other day, I was looking at some of the textbooks we're using. It's from 2005. Mm -hmm. We're in 2021. Mm -hmm. Why are we teaching things from 2005? And this is what I'm saying. This is what I will... Everything uh, that you're I'll saying, know, honestly, and everything that you're saying, like, at first and foremost, not conspiracy theory at all. Like, I'm already, like, I'm a convert from the beginning, right? So it's not conspiratorial. I also feel like... Though I don't believe in alternative facts, I do believe in alternative narratives of facts. Mm -hmm. And so to support it, like, you know, what you're saying, um, yeah, there's a reason why the bell curve exists. There's a reason why, as you say, you know, like the, mm -hmm. even when we think about old money, new money grades, the idea of putting a nine is because mm -hmm. of the way that the, the, the bell curve beforehand, which the C grade was the biggest number, you know, most people got to see because we had to massage mm -hmm. the grades so that there would be some who had to pass for that some could fail, right? Mm -hmm. and I've definitely been in situations where uh, even doing coursework, and this is one of the things that really opened my eyes about teaching and what happens is that one kid had to be the bottom grade mm -hmm. for the statistical like, you know, measurements mm -hmm. of, the, of the grades to go through. I remember having to have a conversation with this kid and being like, look I don't even know if you necessarily know what's what's happening here mm. but you're being set up to be the fall guy mm. grades because they're asking for every fifth mm -hmm. and true your your grade was low mm. but there's a way now that I have to literally condemn your grade even harder to prove that it is the lowest of the of you know of everyone's so that everyone else's grades sits and so when you think about that on a micro level and what that will do to that kid's future mm -hmm. progress. You know, I'm not saying that like my little one conversation as an intervention had any impact on this kid, but it goes back to your point about, you know, I'm, I'm a history teacher by trade and I fully agree that like when, when history is taught as just a set of facts mm. is why you can have things on a macro level such as whataboutism, which is mm. what, you know, the, the right loves to do and the sort of upper class, upper class loves to do because all they know is just facts. They can just spit back to you facts. Mm. But when you teach history as a set of patterns, when yes. you, if you were to teach it as, for example, a conversation around, and this is, I, you know, one of the things that I'd love to do, I'm not going to say this here and someone's going to teeth my idea because I ain't going to get to writing it quick enough. But if I were to swap um, enslavement as an understanding of... Um, the slavers to mm. ch uh, charting a point of like, you no, know, a history of black resistance from enslavement mm -hmm. to modern times, yeah. you would understand why something like BLM exists today. Because the narrative is now, well, you know, if the measurement of success are these things as, a, as according to whatever, the UN or white mm. people at large or whatever the situation is, have black people met these measures? Mm -hmm. you'd understand that there's a reason why we still are resisting because mm -hmm. from beginning to end of interaction with Europeans mm -hmm. there's always been this attitude of to be superior and it goes back to the bell curve in order mm -hmm. for me to be an A you have to be a B you have to be a C you, so mm -hmm. 
in terms of us as black folk, we always have to be somewhere towards the bottom. Yeah. Um, we're not erased, like indigenous folk are erased from the conversation completely. Mm -hmm. But wherever there are black folk, we have to visibly be at the bottom of the list for everyone else in between, which is going back to your point about BAME, to sit somewhere above us so that whiteness can still be at the top. So everything that you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm from the school of it. Like I don't disagree <laughs> with anything from what you're saying. And it's, it goes back to what is education for? If education is for a functional, factory job where you leave school with your five qualifications that you don't remember what you did trigonometry for because you're never going to be an architect you're never going to do you know use maths for the sake of maths like you you don't you don't learn functional skills of like okay let's talk about percentages in terms of tax or let's talk about it in terms of savings or whatever the situation is we're just talking about in terms of sally has and bob needs <laughs> none of these things matter um yeah we're always going to be in that situation and as a history teacher, like, so, you know, I'm glad you really went on that because I'm not, I'm not disparaging. Okay, I used it quite flippantly about Henry VIII. Oh, but it is bollocks. <laughs> Sorry, it, it is because like, there are, there are, there are more interesting narratives than Henry. And furthermore, if you're going to teach Henry properly, let's talk about Henry as being the onset as to why um, the Church of England had such an aggressive strain of enslavement and everyone in the Caribbean is, you know, Anglican and Church of England. Let's talk about why uh, sexism and how that comes about because the trope of which women you know was going to give him a male heir like we touch upon it and they're year eight so they're like what 12 13 so they don't really understand what we're talking about per se let's race that forward to a Meghan Markle and a Harry like as like there's different conversations that you can use Henry for but this nonsense of you know beheaded died da -da 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 -da, who cares <laughs> like who actually cares that's useful for a pub quiz but there's no analysis in that that actually gets you to like Elizabeth's story is far more interesting the mid the crisis is far more interesting Mary and Elizabeth as two sisters who are fighting mm. it out like and I mean this is like this is nonsense this is like I'm, I'm giving you nonsensical things now but when you then check for example in the Avengers right Gomorrah mm. and Nebula's relationship as two sisters yes. trying to vie for the part like you know the relationship with Thanos as their dad where you can't see parallels between Elizabeth and Mary is like That's... there's different things that you can do with history if you choose Exactly. this pattern spot in right so it's not hard you're absolutely spot on because again if we talk about i'm a big marvel fan but you know if we talk about things like four and if you talk about modern marvel stories like they, they said um you know things like comic books are the new mythology mm -hmm. and if you look at a lot of the symbolism i would just touch on this briefly because mm. i can talk about this all day so for example superman is a allegory for christ you know especially if you look at especially these recent films he died and he rose again to mm -hmm. save what he sacrificed himself he was sent to save the world and to redeem the world and they hated him and you know you can look at that and that's why it resonates so truly with so many people but i won't even go into that but um what i'll say <laughs> <laughs> but you're absolutely right the thing is going back to that whole factory idea of schooling schools are designed to make you specialists why because you need to do a particular job at a particular time i'm not saying schooling does not work it works for a particular time so in the 60s for example you would go, you would specialize going onto that trigonometry thing, you'll go through school and then become an engineer. You would have, I think the statistics are, I think um, people changed their careers in the 60s, I think only twice, three yeah. times maximum. They tended to be uh, lifers. They'll go into mm -hmm. a company, the company would look after them, you know, quote unquote, they'll go, they'll get the gold watch, the retirement, and then they'll go and retire to the Penzance or wherever they will do that. Millennials on the other hand, and Generation Z, which is the ones that are currently in school, mm -hmm. they say on average, we'll have about 10 to 12 careers in a lifetime there you right? go right 
in a lifetime. And although that might seem far-fetched, I can even talk about myself. As I said, I went through sales and technology, youth work. I became a NEETS coordinator, so that's management. Then I went into schooling. Then I wrote a book, which means I've become an author. Now I'm a blogger and I'm doing other things. So already I've counted six different possible career paths for myself. And what we've got to do with our young people, and this is what I'd say, touching on um, also the working class and the ethnic minorities, the system was not built for you to succeed in. Not for you to have choice. Exactly. Options. <laughs> it was not built for you. I can tell you many, many, many stories of people that became disillusioned with the system. Mm-hmm. It's not built for us to particularly do well in. I know people, really, really quickly, I know people who went to school uh, with me. They worked very, very hard. They did all the things that schooling required of them. They went to uni. So this, this young lady, I won't say her name, she went to uni. She did everything. She went to go and get the, because uh, she wanted to be a barrister. She went to go and take the bar. I saw the young lady uh, a while after that. So obviously after school, we lost contact. Mm. And she was working in HR um, for a big supermarket. And I said, I was, I was like, what happened? What happened yeah. Tell me. And she, she broke it down like this to me. She basically said, look, I took the bar. My, I had my heart set on being a barrister, but you have to go and get uh, an apprenticeship at a chambers. So a chambers is where the barristers mm-hmm. and whatnot. And um, you work for seven years underneath a barrister. And then you can basically get your license to do your thing. She got no responses. You know why? Because she didn't have the social capital. She's a working class girl from a rough side of East London. What she she didn't realise, and they didn't say this in, in her uni days, a lot of those barristers, they come run through families. It's like doctors. There you go. So they'll say, oh, you're Mr. Oh, Mr. Johnson. Oh, your dad, he was judge, wasn't he? Come to my chambers. You come there, my name is, I don't know, Tyrone or Malik. Okay, mm-hmm. don't know you. And mm-hmm. they're not going to give you mm-hmm. anything. She said after two years, she was begging I'm pleading. She was saying, you know, I was going there, I work for free. I wasn't ask for money. I need to get my foot in the door. After two years, she got nothing. And she realized that it was make, looking bad on her CV because she has a gap. So she said, I had to give up my dream. Yeah. And I said, you know what made me, to this day, still makes me angry about that, is you go to school and people tell you, oh, it's a merit- we live in a meritocratic society. You know, everything is fair, you know, and if you don't succeed in this society, it's kind of your fault. But what you don't realize is that you're playing by a different set of rules. And I say this to my kids all the time. Do you remember the old school, like Sega games, SNES mm-hmm, game? Mm-hmm. And you know where it had like easy, normal, mm-hmm, hard, mm-hmm. extra hard, impossible. Some of us were playing impossible. That's it. <laughs> you, know, you know that one's like Mario where you had like five lives. Easy That's is like literally five it. Lives. Impossible, you have one life, one. no continue. <laughs> you can't make any mistakes, you know? <laughs> One life game over, and that's what some of us. I'm not saying the game can't be won, but it's, you've got to be one of the, but know, it's harder. the cheat codes. It's harder, <laughs> right? No, fully, fully. And so, one thing that kind of really resonates about that story that you literally just said is university didn't tell this person about the setup of the game. Mm. And this is, you know, again, not to get all doom and gloom about it, but two things are at play at the same time. University is not gonna tell this person about the rules of the game because universities now, education is now a business, right? Mm. So we've taken your money, you've read the terms and conditions, we're not obliged to give you any more information than what is in the textbook and on the course syllabus. So all of these extra social capital bits and pieces are now extracurricular for you to figure out yourself. So that's one thing. And the reason why universities would also not tell anyone that is because that is told to, this is your point, the people who need to know know Mm. that message from the jump at home Mm. know that message when they get to you know um eton and all these other you know harrow school and all these other places where they need to know it they know Mm. it from there so when they get to university and they're told you know there's only so much space 
in this ship. So if you start giving the coast to everybody, recognize that now they're competing with you for the same thing that you've now hereditarily had just through who your lineage is or what your lineage is, you shut your mouth. And so you and this person will be competing side by side. And even if you get 80 out of 100 and they get 90 out of 100, you know that your 80, your 20% your makeup mm. is in the fact of the content, the contact, sorry, that you have, yeah. that this person who is banging out first from beginning to end, they mm. don't have the contact. So it's great. You pass over first, that's cool but that's not going to convert into the established way. And we don't tell them how to create their own firms or their own, I mean, I'm glad that I'm seeing, and this is why Twitter is so interesting, I'm seeing some of the um, the black legal contingent of people like, and you know, again, speaking about people who've changed their careers, one in particular I'm thinking about is a woman who was a podcaster of a podcast that I really like listening to, has a legal background, has now become a lawyer and her and I think three other black folk have created like a legal, firm um, of things for themselves and so yeah it's like it's creating things like that and recognizing that people are going to poop on it and say well it's not it's not an established one it's not a real one because it hasn't got one of those star chambers or like whatever the situation is magic circle like it's not one of those so but when would i ever get an opportunity to create one of those in this meritocratic situation apparently we're living in so i'm glad that you said everything because i feel like that sets up the context very well um, in terms of where we can go with this conversation and, and speaking specifically about, so I guess, and this is the, this is the conversation that I'm asking the men <laughs> very differently yeah. um, than the women, it's places that you have found your gender, mm. the relationship between your gender identity and mm. your racial identity. And if mm. there's been any sort of like setbacks, any sort of advancements, just how they interact with each other in the spaces that you're in. And something that you said before about in writing your book, you were advised as a black man that you may not be taken as seriously. Mm. I wonder how much of that is being black, how much of that's being a man, or if it's literally fused in being the two for you in terms of how that, um, how you're perceived in the spaces that you're in. It's a great question. It's a great question. And it's something I've struggled with my whole career because it's not even so much in education. This is in every facet of life. And I remember I was asked to, um, during George Floyd, but when, you know, we became the flavor of the month, my mm. phone was ringing off the hook and I call it a uh, suffering porn for, for, for want of a better term. So they'll be like, yeah, so they'll be like, oh, tell us how you felt and tell us your experience of being a black person. Now, the irony, and I'm not scared to say this, those same people, no, I shouldn't say all of them, a good chunk of them don't want to talk to me no more because, no. you know, Black Lives Matter is no longer the flavor of the month. But what I said to them all the time is that, as a black person, it goes back to what W.E. Debar was saying about the double-minded Negro. As a black person, I realize I'm very, and, and again, this is what I was explaining to people. You, you look at black people and mental health and you see statistically we're seven or eight times more likely to be sectioned. It's not because you know of genetic weakness, it's because we are almost double-minded. We're very aware there's the self, as W.E. Debar said, there's the self, which is what we call the presentable self. It's the self that you use to conform to the particular system, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether it's, you know, wherever you are it, 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 in civilized society. And then there's the more truer self, the authentic self. Mm -hmm. And all those things are wrestling with each other all the time. So when I first started as a TA, I'll give another quick story. When I started as a TA, I started as a TA in a, a school in Wilsden um, as a, a primary school. So I was kind of like a one-to-one -one, uh, mentor. I did football there with the kids. And that's kind of um, another thing I was doing with my youth work because my youth work weren't paying me enough so I needed to do other hustles as well and I'll never forget there was two black boys who were tearing up the corridor absolutely running up and down the corridor tearing, like throwing plants on the floor da 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 you know all that type of stuff 
there was a, a female um, white teacher that was there who was like, boys, can you stop it? Boys, can you stop it? Please stop, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm watching and I thought, you know when you just want to walk past? I just, I want to go lunch. I just want to do my own thing. But I thought my blood was boiling, seeing these two boys running up and down. So basically, I, not so much I lost it, but I said, right, boys, you know, like I raised my voice, I said, boys, can you stop that? Pick up all the stuff that you've done. Da -da 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 -da. Make sure you do this. Da -da -da. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I'm really sorry, sir. I said, yeah, Mrs. been talking to you for the last two minutes. I've been standing here. What are you doing? Come on. You know, you can be better than that. Now what? I noticed that the deputy head teacher was walking past. I didn't think anything of it. She, you know when they just look around the corner mm. and then they go? Um, didn't think anything of it. So I went about my business. At the end of the day, this particular teacher came to me and said, um, Carl, can I see you just really quickly? I said, sure, what's up? I was thinking, have I done something wrong? Because no, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate your help. But she goes, she, let's call her Sarah. Mm. Um, that's not her real name. Mm. She says, I just want to warn you. Um, Sarah approached me after that. Um, and so Sarah is a white woman. And Sarah said, like, do you feel that he was intimidating you? So the teacher in question said, what? Carl intimidating me? No, he was helping me. Because I kind of felt he slightly undermined you when you were talking to those boys. And she said, watch this. She said, if you want, I can, I can deal with him. And I remember um, my mouth was open when I said to the woman, I said, because again, I was kind of tr trying to control my temper. I said, did I do that? She goes, no, 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 no. I know what you did. I know you were helping me. You weren't undermining me. And I appreciate you. I was just saying that she, you know, she took it misconstrued. It, and I thought, why? Because I raised my voice, but the boys did what I said. So it's that thing. The reason why I say that story is that thing of since then, and I was fresh in my career, that thing of aggression versus assertiveness. One of my colleagues could say something and say, you know, quite forcefully, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that. And they say, you know, John, he's a go-getter. You know, John, I like him. He's a kick-ass type of guy. If I do the same thing, I'm being aggressive and I'm being intimidated. And that is always something every time I walk out of my door is that double-mindedness of being aware of how my voice and my body and my intonations will be construed. And then you're walking into a place where, but me, anyway, I'll tell you about me in a second, but when we, when you're walking into a place where you are othered and you are different, you are very almost hypervigilant of how are you going to be perceived? And it's a horrible feeling because you, you can't relax in those spaces. Some people, you literally can feel very relaxed and almost say what they want. But with us, as you said earlier, you are very aware of that almost one strike rule, right? Some other people can absolutely mess up, cock up. Sorry, another micro story really quickly. Like, so for example, I got my timetable mixed up um, one time. And, you know, I, you know, you think you had a lesson on that particular day. I was all eating my lunch and blah, blah. But I realized I didn't. But for, for cut a long story short, I couldn't make that lesson. So my manager came up to me and my manager was like, you know, you know, make sure that doesn't happen. We kind of know you, but, you know, I don't want to make it a formal warning or whatnot. I was thinking, wow, I've been doing this with you for four years. I've never, ever missed a lesson before, ever, ever. Even there's days I've been sick and I've come in because I want to be there for the kids. And the one time I make a mistake and I said, escalate it. exactly, you're talking or we can, I don't, I'm, we're not going to write it up because it was a mistake. But I was like, why would you even need to have that conversation? Mm -hmm. It's the one strike rule, you see. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have to be on point. And, I was having a debate with somebody. It's like, you know, when you look at someone like Lewis Hamilton and Serena Williams and all these different people. And I said, you know why they have to be good? They have to be good because they realise they've only got one shot. Now, everything is in a show. Do you know what? There's, there's, three, there's three things that come to mind um, 
in terms of what you said. And the first one, I mean, I've talked about it on different episodes, but it, it keeps coming back to being relevant is um, there's a study that was done in Canada, but I'm sure, you know, if the UK ever decided to do it, it would be the same information that comes up. The study done by an organization out here called Catalyst, and it's talking about the emotional tax that um, BIPOC mm. uh, people carry into the workplace with them. And so emotional tax, if this is the first time that people are hearing it, it's like the, the sort of invisible backpack of extra weight that you carry into the workplace as a Black person, uh, Indigenous, personal color, that other people don't see because to them it's just you know it's 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 not it's not something that they ever have to worry about and so in essence we know some of the highlights of that study basically said that up to about 70 percent of people feel on guard with a high intent to quit from mm. their job at any one time in the workplace they are always on guard with like the, the sort of expectation that someone's going to come and give them an ultimatum that says either you jump or you're pushed and so they're mm. always thinking about how do i do mm. my job and when we're speaking about the double consciousness how do I do my job but then also have the the foresight of mm. I can't really afford to lose this job you know because mm. the, the people that are dependent on me back yeah. home you know are it are numerate also I don't have like a you know an elderly I want to put color in it but I don't have an elderly relative that I'm waiting for them to pop their clogs so that I can get some inheritance money from them that you know has been built up on the backs of other people from generations ago that I can just tap into if the time gets tough. I don't have any of those. So I have to literally always be on guard um, mm. in the space that I'm in. So that was one of the studies that I wanted to, to kind of raise in there because it's it's something that people, you know, have to deal with all the time. And then the mm. other thing is, um, especially in doing these episodes of men, I've now landed on an understanding of the difference between uh, what it is for Black women and what it is for Black men. And so my coined, like, phraseology around it is if black women are um, always deemed as being aggressive and the moment that they are that they um you know push back yeah. it's even more aggression it's like we were frightened and you know they're, they're angry and the angry black woman trope is the the response to pushing yeah. back when called aggressive the black man's trope is ungrateful right yeah. and again you've just told me that in the story that you've given me which is I want you to know that I'm doing you a favor because where we could have gone is to a warning. And so I just want you to know that you should be grateful that I chose another option because the only two cards I had for someone like you was, you know, severe punishment or letting you know that I'm, you know, giving you a pass. There's always this anxiety around how, how much do I now owe you for doing me the favor that you've done for everybody else before me and it's not been a conversation, but the, the moment that I then say, cheers, but whatever, like now I'm ungrateful. And you can chart that to like a Stormzy, you can chart that to big names in, in, in public um, domains, you know, Rashford, uh, you can chart that to a whole bunch of different black men in particular. The ingratitude trope is the one that's pushed back when you don't show, you know, um, thank you so much, Master, for like not writing me up on this occasion which isn't the case that the other people face. And then finally, the thing that you mentioned about the colleague at the school is interesting because bringing in those two things together to make one, the idea that actually your colleague came to you and said, look, like, just letting you know as well, like, this person basically has it out for you. You would never have known that if this person didn't take it off their back. Like, this is, I guess, allyship, if you like, in, in action. Yes. 
whatever you want to do with that information, whether you want to bank it, whether you want to do something with it, I don't know. But I just need to let you know that the deputy head who, in their big, big role in that school with their big, big paycheck that they get, decided to look around the corner, go back into their hole and go about their business, has now constructed a narrative about your intervention that they've now gone to this person and said, did this happen? No. Well, then did this happen? No. But then, you know, there's like, is there a third option that I can get this person on rather than dealing with the behavior as it was in the school? So for me as a black man, how can I trust that you've got the best interests of the black kids at heart? If the black adult in the school, you are so punitively minded about my actions that you're trying to get me on something. Yeah. How can I then trust that you've got the interest of the black kids in your school of high value? So I just wanted to like frame those three things from what you said. No, no, no. Honestly, what you've just said is so powerful. I'm, I've learned something actually, because I never saw it that way. And what you've just said in the last five, 10 minutes is so powerful and you did it in such a clinical way and, and in such an objective way. And that is partly why it's that hypervigilance. The reason why, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're so touchy or you're so oh, playing a race card again or whatnot is because we're in an environment where we, you know, you're always feeling like you're going to get pulled up on something. Like, oh, I said this during George Floyd because people were saying, well, that's America. That's not here. And I'm saying, well, ask a black person how they feel when a policeman approaches them. I know how I feel. I literally rehearse in my head um, what I'm going to say. I said to Michael, do you have to rehearse? I've seen even some of my colleagues, like the way they talk to police, oh, shut up, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or off, mate. And I was thinking, I mean, Dave Chappelle had a fantastic joke about it where that's like, you know, oh my gosh, like, you you know, you got away with it. Like, it's the same thing where you're rehearsing and again, you're watching your body because they might say, oh, you know, what are you doing, mate? You you know what I mean? We walk into, the reason why we feel that way is because we we realise that we're we're not in a space, I don't want to use the, the wokeisms. We're not in a safe space because now that's become safe space. It's become mm, a, mm, a, a, it's been appropriated by the right wing to mean like snowflake. But it's the truth. If you're not in a place where you feel that you are comfortable and you are appreciated, and even small things like the way I laugh at work, like the way I'm laughing with you, you do proper belly laugh. Again, that could be misconstrued. Like why are you making all that racket? You know, at work you will do things differently, and that's why because you're talking about you know taking up space and whatnot, mm. whatever. I've realized as an author that we have to take up space now. We have to make ourselves heard. We can't, you know, my parents were very much, you know, bless them, you know, know, keep your head down, be quiet. Don't say anything. Yes, sir. No, sir. Free bags, full, sir. That's not going to work anymore. Mm. If somebody can get killed on on TV, George Floyd, and again, I don't want to just even make it about George Floyd or America here. We've got even Mark Duggan. So people say we, we don't even have things like that over here. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. 2011, yeah. we, we had our own George Floyd here, you know, regardless of whatever you thought about him or whatnot. And, you know, there's so many people, um, um, smiley culture, whatnot, mm-hmm. whatever you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, I realised when I was an author, I remember when I, I was first invited to, like, one of my friends who's a publisher invited me to this place and um, where there's other publishers and heads of school and whatnot, whatever you. And um, what's his name? Martin Lewis, the money supermarket yeah, guy. Yeah. And he was talking about finance. And I remember like sitting on tables and in these conference and I was literally one or two of the only black people there. And I walked out of the conference and I was like, I don't belong here. I couldn't take it because um, it was, it's not, they said anything to me, but I, I felt in, you know, when you just don't feel welcome, or they've got a perception of you. But then in my head, I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to use this as my superpower. I'm not going to, I'm not going to see this as my disadvantage. It's going to become my advantage now. I deserve to be here. And even my friends, because I, I said that to my friend, because no, you deserve to be here. You're an author. How many people, regardless of color, have wrote books? Mm-hmm. Not many. So you deserve to be here. And that's what I even say to the kids. You've got to stand and you've got to be proud and not be frightened because it's official, the official statistics say school children believe 50% of um, BIPOC, BAME, Black, whatever, believe that their progress is affected by their colour. 50% of our children. We've got to say no. We've got to say no. You, you, you take up that space. You be loud. And even on Twitter, I've had people approach me privately and say, you know, you can't say those things because, you know, the edge of Twitterati, the mafia that, you know. I probably have worked with them, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're bullies on there. They're bullies. They're all like pylons and they go, they you know, do. saying things like, you know, you shouldn't say that and whatnot. I said, no, I'll say what I want. It's free speech. Absolutely. And if I don't say it, I'm not saying things just to be provocative. I'm saying things because, you know, I realise I have now a voice. I can speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So I will take up that space. And if you don't like it, sue me. Don't actually sue me, but you know. Well, there's nothing to sue you. (laughs) You know, it's funny, like, and this is, anyway, I engage in a fair amount of pettiness because I can, I've got the range. So like, I don't mind, right? And I always say, you know, if you're going to draw a line for petty, I'll limbo underneath it, I'm Caribbean, it is what it is, right? So it's also one of those ones where for me, you can't cancel me because like, first of all, we're not in school anymore. Mm. Not the playgrounds. it's not one of those situations of like your opinion is so profound that it's really going to have that much of an impact on me because here's the thing and this I've learned this from black women in particular femininity and womanhood was never created with black women in mind anyway so you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't so regardless of how you wear black womanhood Mm. you're always going to get pulled out by some white woman talking about oh if only you and it's better that you and I'm just sure if you so it's always going to be policed so given that you know that why waste time arguing with people that you know all you're trying to do is to slow me down come like move move come out the path like i've got places to go things to do and i feel like it's the same thing with us in edu twitter as black folk there is a silencing of how race affects education there's just like we don't want to talk about that because you know it's a it's a purist situation and everybody's the same and it's like no like you know what you're doing but it can't run anymore because as you said here, that fact that you're an author, a published author, the fact that there's an online democratization of how people can speak and get their words out, all of these things are examples of taking up space. So if you don't wanna, if you wanna block my my Twitter handle, good for you. Like, but you're not going to block my ability to get my point out there for blocking me from your feed. Like the two uh-huh. things don't equal anything. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that you are still saying what you're saying without any caveats because that's exactly how people would like us to to play smaller so that they don't have no. to feel uncomfortable ever and i can't do it so <laughs> i just can't you, do it <laughs> no 100 i'll tell you what another micro story i'll tell you one thing that w- where i knew that this was important so before i've been on twitter since september 2019 and my my, my twitter wasn't really i didn't again i won't go into it but i was very weary of social media but I was basically told by people that work in the publishing industry and stuff, you need to do it. There's no choice now. Unless you've got a million pound budget to advertise on radio about your book, you need to do it. So I was like, oh, all right. So I went on there and whatnot. And again, when I first started, again, there was that thing of feeling like I have to be vanilla and I have to just talk about teaching and learning and assessment and whatnot. And I'm not going to lie, I did that. I was kind of thinking, I'm trying to um, plug a book here. But George Floyd happened. And I remember that. 
And I remember I had a blog. So I, I write a blog every week, every Thursday it comes out. So I had my blog already about something to do with behavior management. And then George Floyd happened. I think distinctly, if my memory serves me right, I can't even remember, but I think it happened in the States Thursday. Mm -hmm. So after I released that blog, it happened Thursday, then there was the Friday, then there was the fallout. And I remember come Monday, I was thinking, the blog I had was something about, you know, how to keep your kids engaged. I said, nah, nah I can't, nah, I can't. I have to write from the heart. I have mm -hmm. to write something. But I remember there was a distinct fear. Um, so the, the blog was called um, In Memory of George Floyd. And that was the biggest, the most read blog I've wrote so far. But there was a distinct fear thinking, boy, I'm kind of going to out myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, you're kind of yeah. like, no, talk about that. Leave the race stuff alone. Yeah. And I said, you know what? Flip it. Frig it. Whatever happens, if I get cancelled or whatnot, I get cancelled. You know what I'm saying? If if people don't like what I've got to say, but I said I have to say it. Because at the time, I remember this thing, the edge of Twitter wasn't really talking about it. It was almost like no. a delayed effect, if that makes sense. Yeah. They were like carrying on as normal. And I was getting yeah. more and more frustrated because people don't want to talk about George Floyd. And I thought, let me just do that blog. I left the blog and then, you know, people really responded and resonated. And then I kind of realised that we have a responsibility to speak. You can't be vanilla. You can't you know, when there's evil and things taking place which are wrong, you have a moral responsibility to talk about it and to say about it. You know, you can't just sit on the fence on this one. So I kind of did that. And then that's how, ironically, by writing that, that's how I did come in contact with the Hannahs and the Dr. Muna Abdis and whatnot. Mm -hmm. All these people that are absolute heroes in the space. But it was kind of like, the irony is, was I had to make that decision. And it could have went left. It could have been, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, whatever. Mm -hmm. It could have went left, but in life, you kind of got to stand for something. You've got Absolutely. to stand for something. Absolutely. And that's that, you know? So, I'm proud yeah. of that. I know what, then that, that, I'm proud of that one, and for whatever that's worth. <laughs> no, no, thank you, brother. I'm glad that you've done it, because it's it's an, another example of what you then said before as well, which I think is important for us as educators to clock is, and I've mentioned this to a number of white teachers too, in particular, the kids watch your action as much as your inaction. So every hesitation about, oh, I don't know what the right thing is to say. And, oh, I think I'm going to make it worse. The kids are also clocking that because in your absence of saying anything, just like in our generation, I would say sex ed was the thing, right? Like teachers did not teach us sex ed well at all, right? So in your inaction of teaching us relationships before sex, mm. there's a direct correlation between, you know, the Lynxes of the world, the Zoo magazine, the Nuts magazine, all those kind of things. Now that those things have been banned and like there's there's now going to be, you know what I mean, a knock-on effect of what those things are. So in your inaction of standing up to sexism in the classroom as a teacher in the 90s and, you know, the noise when we were in school, knock-on effect in terms of how men and women interact now, right? So the same thing in terms of how a lot of teachers are like, oh, I, I just, oh, I don't know what to say. Kids are still judging you. Kids will still be judging your inaction as being, well, that must mean then that you're on the side of, or that must mean then that you are pro, or that must mean... So it doesn't serve you as white educators to believe that this is not your fight also because someone else is going to do it for you because the kids will still check you for, you know, the things that you say and don't say as much as everybody else. So... And I'm just just to add on what you're saying, which is so important. And one thing I'm glad, not glad, obviously George Floyd's death was a, a tragic. There's nothing happy about it. But I yeah. think one learning point that we can take from there is that thing of I don't see colour nonsense. I don't see colour nonsense is gone now. You can't ignore because I think that was the it was you know like Uno where you got like the, the card you put and then it cancels all the cards underneath. 
you can't tell me that anymore. And I wrote that blog. You can't say you don't see color or we're in a because Barack Obama was elected we're in a post-racial society. I think it's gone got worse Absolutely after he have. You know, so now people have had to wrestle with the with the difficulties. And I say this all the time to my white colleagues, and I say this to all the because oh, I don't like that black. And you know what? And furthermore, not just yeah. white colleagues, non-black colleagues, because some of them um, need to hear that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Because no, no, thank you. Because people, I don't know why this is. They always say, you know. I always say I have to say to them, black lives matter doesn't mean black lives better. Right. Yeah? Or because it's militant. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not saying my life matters more. I don't know why there's even this hang up about it. All lives matter. Mm-hmm. I know all, and these are teachers that mm-hmm. went to uni for degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Black lives matter does not mean black lives better or mm-hmm. black lives stronger or whatnot. It just means we need to be on an equal footing. If you do not understand institutional racism, you know, if you don't understand these things, because it come to a point where people are like, as I said, as I call it struggle porn, right? But they're oh, please tell us about the black experience. I said, you know, I'm tired. I actually got to a point, I think it's lie. I said, you know what, go and read. Here's a book list. For real. And I even put it on the blog. Go and read it. I can't keep them. It's traumatic to talk about the same thing over and over and over and again. And I said this as well. I actually said this. I said, you guys are going to forget about this. This is not, you're having this awakening. You're going to forget about, no, we won't forget. We're going to keep this alive. Where is it now? It's Where gone. is it now? Exactly. And if the reason being, I care about, obviously, I'm, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm an able-bodied person. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky and I'm very appreciated of that. 50% of London Underground does not have um, able... Right. Um, uh, accessibility for, yeah. Accessibility for those who... Mm-hmm. who uh, I've got disabilities. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you want to go to Oxford Street, what somebody with disabilities will have to do is either go to Tottenham Court Road or Bond Street because there's a lift there. So, Oxford Street does not have a lift. Now, when I heard that, as a person, of course I care. Of course it's not right and it needs to be changed. Yeah. But because it's not, how can I explain? I'm just being very pragmatic. Yeah, for real. So, people don't say I'm against disability. I'm not. I'm just saying it because it doesn't touch wood affect me or the people personally around me, it doesn't have that same zest mm-hmm. as something else. And I said, it's not because of you, you're white or whatever, it's human nature. Yeah. It's what is important to us. The reason why George Floyd was so, uh, you know, so such a big thing is because it was in your face. You could not deny what was happening there. That's why if it was a report and there was no video, it would have not been as big as it was. If we weren't in a pandemic, like, you know what I mean? You couldn't turn every, there were literally two things we're talking about. Either the fact that you can't leave your yard or this is what happened outside your yard. Like that's literally the two (laughs) conversations. So, you know, there was no distraction from, from the narrative. And you're exactly right. Like there's a way that even when we think about disability, we're all temporarily able-bodied. That's literally it, right? Because at some stage, you know, even if we make it right to the end, deterioration is going to set in, but we are all temporarily able-bodied. And so that example is just right to explain that for many people, and this is one of the things that I constantly say to people now in training, um, when I tell them that ultimately in the end, it's more a case of um, you actually don't know who is uh, who else is on, like you don't know who is attached to who on the call. So mm. when people are start talking about, you know, whiteness and black people this and rare, 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 you have no idea if that white person that you reckon is part of your in-group mm. actually has a black person attached to them and doesn't actually feel the same way as you. And so there's a way that it, it hopefully gets people to start reckoning with the idea that not everyone in this space is a given exactly. in terms of how I feel, right? 
And it doesn't always work like that because there are absolutely some people that just still don't business because, you know, my rights trump someone else's, right? So that's that's one thing. The other thing that's also interesting, though, that I would say is um, it goes back to the point about how teaching and education has been done. Again, if the, the question was, like, what are Black people resisting for and how long have they been resisting? Like, if that was a different question you wouldn't have the beef around Black Lives Matter is a, you know, militant this or whatever. You would be able to understand it better than how you do. But because yet again, we go back to what education has narrowed these narratives into being, you know, page 54 is, uh, you know, Black people in Africa. And it's like one paragraph in that page. Yeah. Page 55 is enslavement in the Americas. Or well, maybe you like maybe the path of this like the middle passage or whatever it is. Then you get slavery in the Americas, and then the next page is William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, and it's all done. It's like how is this in three pages exactly. a situation? You know, and furthermore, again, us in the UK, we're not. We, I, don't, I don't really care too much about the American experience. It's good to have it in my head as a comparison, but that's not the experience that got me to the UK. The experience that got me to the UK is either colonialism in Africa. Mm. or enslavement in the Caribbean. One of those two stories is the one that you need to be telling me, not this American thing. And furthermore, when you look at the statistics, 51% of all ships that left Africa to go to the Americas ended up in Brazil. So why are we talking? And then the the second biggest group was the Caribbean. The third group was the the States. So we spend the most time talking about an experience that had the not, you know, and they're all severe in their own ways, but numerically speaking, the smallest percentage of people went to the Americas, but that's the dominant story that we hold in our heads. And so we don't really know any others. This is the thing, right? This is what I say to people. For the first time ever, um, there was Black History Month. And for the first time I said, I don't even want it this month. The reason being was obviously post George Floyd, I thought everything in our history goes through the prism of struggle. Everything in our history goes through the prism of struggling against being oppressed. So, every you know, kids from as young as five know who Martin Luther King is and whatnot, what have you. And the, Martin Luther King is almost this person. I said this to my colleague, right? So they're saying, you know, Martin Luther King's dream and this is what blah, blah, blah. I go, if you're going to talk about Martin Luther King, you need to talk about Malcolm X. Got very uncomfortable. History teacher. Why? Why don't you want to talk about it? And it's not because... And I, get, and I said... Again, you've been taught Malcolm X is this, that, and the other, and I won't get into that, but I'm saying there's nuance in history. Martin Luther King at the end of his life said his dream failed. People are not talking about right? If you're gonna talk, talk about Fred Hampton. Also, let's talk about people that were over here, Yeah. right? Let's, don't give me this narrative, this singular, you know, what made me laugh was um, Bernice King put the quote about, uh, the Martin Luther King quote was basically saying that writing is the language of the oppressed. And it was, amusing to watch all these absolutely come and say you know your dad would have not, not want your dad, dad you know keep your dad's legacy alive and she said point blank we i didn't kill my dad in fact okay you killed okay. my dad and he said he wasn't popular now he's popular okay but at the time he's one of the most hated men in america okay. and what i'm saying to people and what i said to my colleague was that you need to update your you know everybody understands nuance when we talk about winston churchill we understand that yes on one hand, he fought the Nazis Most and of us. You know, Germany. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't know what you mean. Go on. <laughs> on the other hand, he was a eugenist. Yeah. 
Yeah. This is again not conspiratorial. Yeah. He was a eugenist, yeah. and yeah. you know he, he believed in the Commonwealth. He was the, what is known as the white man's burden. Mm-hmm. For me, as a, a person of color, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm neither nor. Let's rip his statue down, or let's celebrate him as a hero. We're human beings. There you go. That's one of the hard points I want to say. We are all got good and bad sides to us. Because when I was talking to my colleagues about this, like how are we ever going to solve this problem of race or whatnot? You know, I tried to see past race. I said, no, don't, don't, you don't have to see past anything. Just talk to people and understand people. This is what I say about kids. Stop putting people in, 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 in blocks. Morgan Freeman said a controversial statement, which I think people misconstrued what he said. It's a famous clip now where they were talking about Black History Month and he said, I don't want it. I don't want Black History Month. Mm. You're a Jewish. He was talking to somebody. He goes, "You're a Jewish person, right?" He mm. goes, "What's your name, Martin? My name's Morgan. How come? How comes? How? Let's start with that. Let's not talk about black or whatnot." People thought he was saying he's against that, but I think they misconstrued his point. When we start looking at people as human beings, going back to that um, idea of um, able bodyism, right? If yeah. I see somebody in a wheelchair, I can't assume that every person in a wheelchair is the same. Absolutely. You know? patronizing thing of oh do you want my help or maybe they don't want your help maybe they do is seeing people as individuals and stop blanketing people as a black equals aggressive black equals this or white equals that or indian equals this. this is why i hate bame so much because you've taken literally it's basically bame and non and and and, and, and white people you can't do that because in those letters there's so much nuance so if you much. Take, we're not this monolithic block even amongst black people, there's Caribbeans, black Africans, you know, Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much. So when the government have done that, because people say, do you want me to call you Bane? I say, call me black. Black. So I don't represent the whole, I'm not United Colours of Benetton. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's interesting still, because at the same time, like, and this is one thing I, I train people on at the moment, it's like, but white is also racialized. So when you talk about racialized people and whatever, whatever, the same flattening is happening to you all, but you know, it seems like, what are you comfortable in trading? Because you're ready to tell me that you're Italian when I just call you white, right? Mm. But then when I say that, you know, I'm Jamaican or Caribbean or whatever else, like I have to be termed as black. So it's somewhere along the line, because also Italians, um, even if, okay, let's just speak about Europe specifically, the Southeast of Europe. So Spanish, Portuguese, like you folk were not, and Italians, you lot were not included in what was deemed as being Aryan race. Like you weren't deemed as being, you know, you were the mongrels of Europe. Like this, these are the words that were used against you all. So somewhere along the lines, you have traded in what was poor stock mm. to now trade into whiteness and cash in on that. But what has that been at the expense of? Because you come to a place like Canada, you come to a place like America and you would say, oh, you know, I'm white. But then you also want me to acknowledge the fact that you're, you know, your little Italy or your little Portugal or whatever else the situation might be. So what have you traded in about your culture, which is why you get upset when we say that you have no culture because whiteness doesn't have a culture because whiteness is not a thing. You don't get that. And you get upset, which is why you then think that Black Lives Matter is an affront to you. And you you term everyone as being BAME or POC or racialized, not realizing that, but then you've also been racialized as white then. Like you've allowed your culture to be traded in for this monolithic understanding. And so when we say that all white folk and you're like, oh no, but not us, we're Russian. We had a different history. Yeah, but you're not telling me that you're Russian loud enough. You're ticking the white box more readily than you're ticking the Russian box. So I would have to assume that on paper, the same way how you assume me as black equals all these different things, 
I'm not reading your Russian history as being a serf or being someone who has had like, you know, hardship as being credible because you have traded in that history. Like when the Irish love to say that we were slaves too. Yes, true. You were enslaved too. That's true. But at the same time, when parties came around and Fets came around and O'Reilly could change their name to Ryan or, you know, or Riley itself or Richardson or whatever else, I couldn't trade in my black skin. I had to exclude myself from all of those fets and parties that you were able to dress yourself up nicely for. So don't conflate your experience as being a white enslaved person as being the exact same thing as a black person, because somewhere along the line, your Irish ancestry has been traded in for whiteness and you've gone along with it. So I difficult mean, to hear for mm. some of them, but let's, if, we wanna, if we want to engage in that conversation, let's engage in that conversation. So I say all the time, there's one book called Black and British and for the life of me, Olusu, David Olusu. Yeah, yeah, David Olusoga. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the best books I've ever I've ever read in the terms of it really breaks down factually, mm -hmm. pragmatically what happened. And the thing is, and I studied sociology as well, so I kind of know. In order, look, I won't go into the whole thing, and this is what I was explaining again to my my my, my non-black colleagues and people that are being brave enough to answer because they'll say, "I feel like I'm a bad person." You're, this whole thing, the reason I'm with you on this because it's wrong, but I don't like feeling like I'm an evil or a bad person. And I'm not, I'm not racist. Yes, I've got blind spots. So I don't like when certain people talk, that it's almost like they're attacking me. Mm, I said, yeah. I'm not attacking you at all. I'm not even blaming you at all. Of course, this was your forefathers. I'm not putting that responsibility on you. But what I said, what you've got to understand is this as human beings, in order for colonialism and slavery to happen, right? People talk about just, uh, you know, American slavery. Go and look up what happened in Angola when King, King Leopold, the, the second or third. I always Thank you. Up. Look at what happened in, in the Congo. Yeah. In the Congo. I said, in order for this, the same way we look at Nazism um, and what happened, unfortunately, to, to, the, to, mm -hmm. uh, to the Jewish people, they, a whole ideology had to be created to allow other people to enslave others and to dominate others. That is just what it is. As a human being, a natural human, if you're a psychopath, you're fine. You, if I went into someone's house, kicked their door open and set fire to their house, I would, there's a guilt. There'll be a thing of, you know, this is wrong, what we're doing. But in order, and this is what he talks about in the book, it was consciously constructed mm -hmm. to say, look, because people are like, oh, taking slaves, is that the kind of right thing? But there had to be that narrative of they were less than human. Fully. They're, they're three quarters human. That Fully. was the terms. And I said, what you don't understand, you are not evil. I said, I have no issue with any white person, Indian person. I said, but you have to understand the lens that you have been given is not the correct lens. The lens is not pure in a sense of you see the world a certain thing because you've inherited. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, how can I explain it? It's like, you took my house from me. Like you took my house from my great, great grandfather. You live in that house. You pay the bills and the electric in that house. Yeah. My great, great grandchild comes and says, you took it from my great, great grandfather. You did not take it. And it's a, actually a poor analogy, but you kind of get that. I know, I get it. You have to at least acknowledge that that was wrong. Yeah. Now, if you want to discuss with that young person or, or not young person, that person say, look, maybe we can split it or whatnot. That's a whole different story. What I'm saying is that you've inherited things or views which are not correct. We're human beings. That is what, when I look at Black Lives Matter, forget the whole Marxist ideology. What it's saying is that we need to have a lens where we can see each other as equal because we do Absolutely. not see each other as equal. And there's, there's things, there's biases 
And human beings have natural biases anyway. It's things, they're biases that have been given to you, which until we acknowledge, so, you know, the classic thing of, I don't say the N word, I don't treat this, that, that fine. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying you are racist because some people, I genuinely, some people say, oh, that you're racist. I don't, I don't believe that. What I believe is that when it comes to me applying for a job now, you might not consciously recognize this. Again, it's like what my colleague said. You look at me as a black author. The thing is, black author is always attached. Absolutely. Just author. Just author. So already you've cr- you, you create a certain stereotype of me, which is de- could be detrimental for my career or detrimental for the- That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's not you, John, mm-hmm. or Mary. Mm-hmm. You're not an evil or wicked person because there are allies. And I say this to my, my other black friends, oh, white people. I say, no, there are some people that are genuinely trying to change but they're looking at it from the wrong end of the stick. Really? Oh, let's not say the N-word or whatnot. Of course, in, in, in civil society, of course, you shouldn't be saying that anyway. And, of course, and again, with the black community, I'll say as well, we need to have a consensus because the problem, again, the rap, or I'll call it the rap argument, you're saying it to each other. So when I say it, you get offended, but you're saying this to each other. I don't agree with the N-word personally. I'm what? not even going to get into it because the amount of TikTok the videos... No, no, legit. Like, the amount of TikTok <laughs> videos I'm seeing at the moment, I can't stand TikTok as it is, but the amount of TikTok videos that I'm seeing where people are just doing all kind of alchemistic hand movements to, like, rap songs in the back and everything's the N-word this and N-word that. And I'm just like, what, it, what, it, what is Thomas doing? Like, <laughs> what is Peter doing? Like, what, what, like, so anyway, I'm not even going to get into that. The rap argument, trust me, I've been racking my brains yeah, about this, but... um. What I'm saying is that you have to understand that a wrong has p- taken place. Mm. I'm not saying that, you you know, of course, oh, do you want to rip up society? I said, but there has to be an acknowledgement. That's the first step. There has to first be an step. acknowledgement first of that. And, and, and we have to address that. It's not about you being white. Like, if you're white, you're predisposed to be racist towards me. As we know with children, um, many studies have said it's a learned construct. Absolutely. Learned. But if we've got institutions like schools, so last example about this, you're mm. still teaching a book like of mice and men. I've had debates in my school about this, and teachers are saying the n spraying the n word in a class like it's spraying nothing. It. Spraying no it context, around. nothing. No context, no explanation. Oh, but that was of the time. But I said, when you do, you see what you're doing there. You're justifying. If I there was a book about a paedophile, I'm not. I'm not conflating. Yeah, no, for real. But we wouldn't. I say I want to do this. You wouldn't. That book would not even be read, even if it's not part of the main plot. Because the the other yeah. mice and men argument is. Oh, that's it's that's not the main thing. I said, but there, if I found a book with a paedophile in it and it's graphic about talking about paedophilia, no matter if that's a side plot, that would be not in the film. So the amount of like um so I did English as an A-level, I did history as an A-level, and the amount of times that you would find um when you have so we did the wife of Bath and the Canterbury like Canterbury Tales wife of Bath and that was like an explicit like read through and I went to a boys school right I remember my English teacher would take our t- like we would take our time and go through the construct of why would this be used what is the impact of this word um, think about the time and place like think bring in your history knowledge like we would do a whole song and dance about what the specifics of this particular term in this context was used. Now, I'm not saying, I, I guess what I'm specifically saying is my English teacher also passed as white, but was like Indian and white. So he also had had his, in his head an understanding of how he would be read versus what he wanted us to read as a school that was in Victoria, which the kids were just black, right? Um, not every teacher's doing that because going right back to our initial conversation about teacher training, Teacher training is now done by these educative purists, and this is why I said I probably worked with half of them, where for them, the mastery of the conversation is around 
we just say the word or we just, you know, we look at different things. We don't bring subjects together. We don't say, let's use your history knowledge to look at like English, right? We don't say, let's look at um, our, geogra our geographical understanding as to why certain things take place in, I don't know, in maths or in RE or whatever. We don't, we don't bring these things together because to master one subject is to look at it in terms of being siloed. Mm. Take all of that logic, throw it forward and have an understanding as to why you have people who cannot bring two thoughts together in mm. a way that makes sense. Because to them, if I bring in historical understanding to this term, I've now lost my argument of being a purist of, which is why, so prime example, David Starkey should never be anywhere near anything that's not to do with the Tudors, because you are a historian of the Tudors. That is, that's your domain. That's the thing that you love to do. And you love to sensationalize the stories of the monarchs of that time. So why would I then ask you to give me an understanding of enslavement unless your only, you know, nudge in is under Elizabeth, what happened with the Armada, what happened with enslavement? Like, if that's what I'm asking you to talk about, then specifically that's your domain, that's great. But what we've done is that we've conflated people's understanding in their siloed mastery of yeah. a topic <laughs> suggesting that they are also other people to be referenced to in other places. But then at the same time, equally, we say that that's only the domain of the smartest people. So not everyone can access that level of thinking. You just have to, you know, remain separate here and separate there and whatever else. So it's the gaslighting effect that is the UK, because at the same time, you're overthinking it at, at the same time that you're not smart enough to think about it. And that is the UK to me in a nutshell, <laughs> in terms of how it does its education. Yeah, you're constantly in those moments. My final thought on that particular thing is that, look, as I said to people, and I'll say it, and I'll keep on repeating this, look beyond the surface. You don't, really? another thing that annoys me, because as I said, I call out both sides, is that some people are like, well, you to, you know, you need to do this and pay reparation, reparations and look at the moon. And then when the moon goes at a certain angle, pray to, no, you don't need to do this. You need to just understand that people are individuals and ask honest questions and try to take that lens and realize, and even me, I'm not saying, black people or indians haven't got lenses that's human beings we've got sure. biases but we if we have the awareness of it we can kind of wipe it clean it's going to get dirty again yeah, yeah. But it's one of the yeah. things of, of looking at it through through that lens that we're yeah. human first yeah yes. it's um so i guess then like where i want to kind of go to as a mm. sort of not wrap up but a sort of like let's bring it all together it's I go back to what I said at the beginning about you, like you have got a particular lens and a particular point of view about how you see your role in education, how you see the role of education. And that's been in part, you know, determined by how you have experienced your own education coming through, but then also the choices that you've made going um, through your career. And in that, I wonder what reflections you have for others as part of a conversation that's wider around how you have challenge anti-black racism i guess we've spoken about it a little bit already about the, the positioning that you've made and the sort of um the choices that you made both online in person things to publish but i wonder if there's advice that you would be able to or reflection sorry not necessarily advice just reflections that you have on yourself about the choices that you've made and how any of those are contributed to an anti-black racism lens no that's a very good question i mean what i would say to people we live couple of things, well, I'll try and condense it down. We live, people really underestimate the times we live in. We're living, we're literally seeing an old age die 
and a new age come. I honestly believe that if the if the industrial age was a person, it passed away in 2019. It passed away. It's been on life support for a long time, but it passed away. It officially went in 2019. No, 2020, should I say, when the COVID hit. We are fully in the information age now. Now, though I don't believe in society, we are we fully dealt with the discrimination, not only of black people, but of all peoples, other peoples. One thing I can say is that the internet is what's democratized things. The internet, we, re, you know, as I said, I remember a time, the first time I ever used the internet, I was 17, 18 years of age. We've got kids who are born into it now. They'll never know a time before it. And I've always, as a person, kept my eye on it because, and I'm always trying to say to myself, never to underestimate it and keep that sense of wonder. Because we, through the internet, there's so many things that we can do. And why this is important, especially what I'd say to people of color and people people that are othered, is that you can create a voice for yourself. Agreed. Before the internet, you had to be one of the old boys club. You literally, and that was like whether it's Oxford or Cambridge, and again, no offense to them, but I'm saying this is just the facts of it. In the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in other places, where you needed to be invited in. You needed to, it's, it's, I know people that worked in the music industry, and they were just saying the music industry turned on its head and it still doesn't know what it's doing. If you were a singer, you needed to meet the Simon Cowles or the whoever's. You needed almost somebody to walk you in that room, the Puff Daddies or the Jay-Z's, to go to the record label and say, look, this person is a fantastic singer, you know? And then the label will almost bequeath you, pick you and bequeath you the money and the funds. Now, a, a kid in Guatemala, who happens to be a great singer, can literally make a tune and put it on there and get billions. That's that how part. Justin Bieber... Justin Bieber didn't get scouted traditionally. He was a YouTube. He was a YouTuber who was that singing. Look, and look how powerful that is. So why I'm bringing the music analogy into it is that you don't need anybody's permission no more. You go out there and you and and, and you speak and you 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 do what you need to do, even in terms of career. And again, this intersects with race, class, color, industry. We as millennials, they're saying that they've raised the retirement age in the UK for, for most people to, to the age of 70. The life expectancy of a male in the UK is about 73, 74. So you're telling me, my parents could retire at 60. You're telling me I work all my life and I've got three years for myself and they're probably not going to be good years because I'll probably mm. be older, mm. no mango, and I die. And they're saying that retirement may never come back. I would say to every single person, you've got to be an entrepreneur. You've got Absolutely. to be an Go out there, write a book. You can publish a book off Amazon. You don't need a book publisher. Absolutely. Write your blog. That's how I started my blog. I never blogged before in April. When I won that award, and I'm not saying it even to, as a humble brand, I'm still shocked. Brag it about humble. Just brag it. Come on. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is I made a decision again in April because it was lockdown, and I thought I'm, I'm going a bit, not I'm going mad. I shouldn't even say it flippantly, but I was mm. thinking, oh, I need to do something outside of teaching with my time. And I said, let me just write a blog. I didn't know what was going to come of it. So what I'm saying to people is that don't expect this angel, not angel, let me not say that. Don't expect somebody to come and pick you and yeah, say- There's no savior. You. Exactly, yeah. they could be you. Go and do things, man. Mm. That's my advice and my reflections. I can tell we're off the same age because I know exactly that lottery hand that you were doing. <laughs> 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 Know that's what you're doing. <laughs> it could be you. It's never been. <laughs> but it's like that big, big finger. It's never been me. Come on, play that me or something. <laughs> it's true, man. It's true. Yeah. That's that's not gonna happen. So go out no, there. Go and make true. yourself up. Hey, man.
but you know thank you for this time man i've really enjoyed it like legit like it's been it's funny one of the reflections that i had in my head is like typically they say that men don't talk right but mm. <laughs> it's a damn lie first and foremost but i also think it depends on what what we are talking about not every conversation just like anyone this is not a you know a gender specific mm. thing i just feel like if you're passionate about something you will can talk about it. i'm really grateful that we've had the time to speak about your experiences your perspective how it all ties together i think you know first and foremost people get a better appreciation of who you are outside of the classroom but beyond that, I think there's an understanding and appreciation as to why you are where you are. Like you are an expert in the field that you have, like uh, that you've, sorry, the domain and field that you've put yourself into, you are an expert in there. Um, mm. And it's not by accident. It's because you've actually taken the time and dedication to go out there and think about what does it mean for me as a person who identifies as I do and is identified by others in the way that I am. Um, mm. You know, what does that look like? So yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this one. If you've listened all this way, thank you very much. Check me out. So as I said, Carl C. Poupe, check me out on uh, actionheroteacher.com. Um, if you like that, as I said, I've got a free ebook called Teaching Generation Z, which touches on a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. So go and get yourself a free ebook. And yeah, thank you for your time. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you.